as he comes to bring God's word to us. Forgive me and let me uh, get set up here for a second. While I'm doing that, if you would just like do a brief prayer for my wife right now, because as you mentioned, I have four kids and she is wrangling all of them right now by herself. And uh, we're in a similar situation. Usually at church, we're like all sprawled out on the ground with snacks and crumbs are everywhere. And there's markers flying and we do finger paints and it's a, it's a lively time. So pray for her if you would. Uh, and I was really encouraged whenever I saw the reconnaissance over here a second ago. My brother in the back, he went, grab that baby that was sprinting up to the front. That just makes me feel at home. So thank you for doing that. It is really a joy to be with you this morning. And uh, my wife and Elizabeth and I have been attending the Pastors College, as they've said, and uh, for the last several months. We just so enjoyed our time there. And I'd like to start by just thanking you on behalf of my family. The reason being because uh, you guys helped send us there by your partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches. And uh, you know as well as I do that, that pastors within Sovereign Grace... I think we could easily characterize them with two words, humble joy. And uh, I, I see that in the, the lives of your pastors as well. I got to spend some time with them over this past week, like they mentioned. And uh, I know that they love the Word of God. They, they immerse themselves in the Psalms for four days learning. Uh, and it wasn't just something just uh, self-indulgent in this love, but it was, it was for a purpose. And that purpose is to serve this church they love this church. And so I've, I've witnessed that, and I was so encouraged by that. And so uh, I, I consider it a great honor um, to be here, up here. I'm grateful for your pastors, and it's an honor to open the word of the Lord with you this morning. So uh, I'd like to go ahead and invite you to turn your Bibles to Galatians 4. We're going to be in verses 4 through 7 this morning. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And as you're turning there, I'd, I'd like to tell you a story that's very dear to my family. This is a story of the first time that we met a young lady named Judy. And I had just graduated high school, and my family went down to Honduras on a short-term mission trip. And we partnered with a friend who had started a home for high school girls who had basically aged out of orphanage care. So Judy was one of those, and she was a vibrant spunky girl about the same age as me and though she was barely even five feet tall she w was known throughout the neighborhood as this fiery tough soccer player that even the the high school boys were afraid of so uh, our family we had a wonderful time serving alongside Judy during our short time there we laughed we told stories we served in the community together it's a great week but as the week went on the warm and lively Judy that we come to know and love during that week, she seemed like she was just kind of withdrawing. And by the end of the week, we, we couldn't even find her to say goodbye. And when we finally found her, she was acting really cold towards us. And we just couldn't understand why she was acting like that. What happened? So my mom, who self-admittedly is terrible at Spanish, she tried to do a Spanish farewell to Judy. And so she went to go give Judy a hug and tried to crank out the phrase, hasta luego, Judy. And for those of you Spanish scholars out there, you know that means like, see you later. Well, uh, as she went to say this and went to give Judy a hug, Judy kind of pulled away and replied, hasta never. 
my mom was really shocked by that statement, and I think all of us were, and uh, trying to figure out, didn't we have a good time together, Judy? Like, didn't, didn't we have a fun time this week serving together as friends? Are we going to part that way or not? Well, what we didn't understand was that for Judy, this goodbye was preceded by a lifetime of goodbyes. She had been abandoned by her mother and separated from her twin sister. She grew up in an orphanage with corrupt leadership that lined their pockets in the name of Jesus, and then they leveraged their authority to take advantage of young girls. The alternative to the orphanage was to drop out of school and work the streets in a country with one of the highest murder rates in the world. So vulnerable to corrupt orphanage leaders within, vulnerable to street life without. Judy's whole life was characterized by trying to survive both physically and emotionally. So Austin Ever was this self-protecting response to yet another family who would pass her by. So we were just another case of her longing but never belonging. Well, my parents... They refused to let Austin never be the case with Judy, and they insisted that we would be back the next summer, and that's exactly what happened. Judy was ecstatic to see us again the next summer. And this time, my parents began talking through the logistics of how Judy might be able to come and stay with our family in order to pursue an education and play college soccer. Two years, many prayers later, that conversation became a reality. So, so amazing looking back. Now, fast forward 13 years after playing college soccer and graduating with honors, Judy is now working in Atlanta, Georgia for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And she's also an ambassador for Operation Christmas Child. You know, the shoebox things. Amazing. She recently got her green card. And now my parents will be able to help her get a name change so that she can officially be a Hollingsworth. Now she never has to say, Asta never. Now it's always Asta Luego. Judy belongs, and she's loved, and Judy has a family. That's a wonderful story. Dramatic transformation, isn't it? It's a powerful story for me. It's a personal story for me. It's my own sister. But it's, it's also a story that points to something that every Christian should be able to relate to. Are you aware of the dramatic transformation that you've undergone? Perhaps you feel like God is an abstraction that has little to do with your daily life. Or maybe you fear that he's silently watching you, his arms crossed, waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you. Maybe you think God's too great, too high, too holy to give attention to your little life and your little issues. And maybe you've suffered and you feel like God is cold or malicious. Wherever you may be this morning, these verses that we have in front of us deliver the truth about the life of any Christian. And they can revolutionize the life of any Christian. These verses display the dramatic story of your transformation. So look on with me, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. This is the word of God. But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you're a note taker this morning, I believe that the main point God has for us this morning from this text is simple but substantive. The gospel transforms from slaves to sin to sons of God. This text announces not only our forgiveness in Christ, but the glorious transformation that is ours in Christ. A transformation from a slave to a son, to a child of God, to the family of God, loved by God. So understanding this divine adoption, it changes literally everything. It transforms how we think about our status before God when we sin. It transforms how we view God's disposition towards us. It transforms how we think about suffering. It will transform the first thoughts we have when we get out of bed tomorrow morning. If we begin to grasp this precious truth, I believe we will experience an unshakable joy and humble gratitude based on what God has done for us through Christ. It's my prayer this morning that you will walk away from this more convinced of his abounding love for those he claims as his own. We're going to go in two stages of this divine adoption that I think come from this text. The first stage is through the Son, our adoption is secured. And the second stage, through the Spirit, our adoption is assured. So stage one, through the Son, our adoption is secured. As you've seen, we're, we're in chapter four out of six. So coming in at chapter four can feel like the beginning of watching a one-hour movie and you're, you're 40 minutes in, you're saying, what's going on here? So let's rewind a little bit. I'm going to play it back real fast and catch us up to what's happening at this point, okay? So the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians in the Galatian church to combat false teachers who are saying that faith in Jesus is not enough to be right with God. Huh? <laughs> They're saying it's necessary to keep certain parts of the law in order to be acceptable. This teaching is what we would call now legalism. Most basic definition I could come up with is legalism believes that we can gain or maintain God's favor by what we do or don't do. Paul just hammers back. He says, nope, Galatians 2, verse 16 this may be the key verse in the whole book. This is what he writes. We know that a person is not justified or made right by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So if, if people are made right with God by faith in Christ, not by keeping the law, then what, what's the deal with this law here? That's what we're trying to figure out. And this is exactly the question Paul is dealing with in chapter 3. The law does not give life. If it did, then why would Jesus need to come and die for us in the first place? Right? 
So no, keeping the law cannot save anyone. The law was added to highlight the breadth and the depth of our sin. Paul says that the law is a guardian that leads people to recognize their need for a savior. And now, Savior Jesus has come. So placing their faith in Jesus is what makes people right before God, not by going back and trying to keep the law that was impossible to keep in the first place. To put themselves back under the law would be like putting themselves back under slavery after freedom in Christ has already been purchased. So coming into chapter 4, what is Paul trying to say? He's saying the law was never meant to save us. He's told us what the law is. It's not the way that we relate to God. It's not the way we're justified by God. Only God can make us right with God. So we come to our text in the flow of Paul's argument, and there's this mounting tension. We are confronted with this pivotal question. Who can do something about sin? Look down at verse 4 with me. But when the fullness of time had come, who? Whose name comes after that comma? Try this, just as a thought experiment. Try this on for size. But when the fullness of time had come, I checked the boxes off of my Bible reading plan. <laughs> but when the fullness of time had come, I prayed at lunch today. Not heroic. Uh, but when the fullness of time had come, I did not cuss in traffic. So, I mean, it sounds, it sounds kind of absurd when we say it like that. But, but isn't that kind of the game that we play? <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm caught. I, okay, I repent. <laughs> That, it really is. It's kind of the game we play. It, just like the Galatians, we start to believe that we gain and maintain God's favor based on what we do or don't do. That's, that's like saying we need to cross over the Grand Canyon in order to get to God by using a secure, ready-made bridge that would allow us safe passage. It is a perfect bridge that God himself built that spans the entirety of the 18 miles from side to side. What if, after walking across that bridge to the other side, we did a little dance, and then we said, well, that was really helpful. Why don't we go back to the other side and try jumping across this time? That is the absurdity of legalism. We could never try hard enough to muscle our way to God. The, the chasm of sin is too great. So Paul is going to redirect our attention to the pivotal moment in history that answers the question, who can do something about sin? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Our God is an initiating God. He acted definitively at the appropriate time. The point is that God is intentional and strategic at all times. And I don't know about you, but for me, this is a great comfort when I'm thinking about our own lives. Even when it appears that God is silent or inactive, he is sovereignly orchestrating all things. And this verse turns our attention to the focal point of all of history. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Why did God send his son? Because redemption was necessary. When comparing divine adoption to 
human adoption, the analogy starts to break down a little bit here, right? So these are not orphans to be pitied. This story begins with lawbreakers, slaves to sin. So redeem, it, it literally means to release a slave from his or her owner by paying the slave's full price. And as you remember, Paul is making an argument here that the purpose of the law is to lead people to see their need for a redeemer. The law accentuates what is true of all people born of woman, born under law. All are slaves to sin. And this isn't just the Galatians in this, in this book. This is our story too. There's a claim on our lives from the creator of the universe. He is utterly perfect and totally just. And that presents a problem, doesn't it? Because we are not perfect. We've rejected his authority, and we've attempted to live based on what we think is good and right. And the result is that we begin to compare ourselves by ourselves, and we think we're okay because we can always find someone a little bit more jacked up than we are, right? Now, the game that we play, like... You've seen this guy, right? I'm okay. And we start to do that. But that's like trying to give out medals for the best landing to skydivers with no parachutes. The point is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. <laughs> the standard's not other sinners, but a perfect God. We've fallen infinitely short of perfection. We've stolen, lied, Lusted, hated, coveted. And if you think, well, I didn't do any of those things, here's the kicker. We failed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are slaves to sin. So how can God be just and let rebels walk free after committing treason against the highest authority in the universe? That's the question we're left with, and Scripture makes it clear that God is just, but He's also gracious. And in order to spare us of the death that our rebellion deserved, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, Jesus, like all other men before, was born of a woman and under the law. But unlike all other men before, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, but he didn't stop there. For he came to redeem slaves from the penalty of their sin. Galatians 3.13 makes explicit what the Son did for slaves. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And there he willingly hung on the cross, taking on God's just punishment against the sins that we committed, so that all who put their hope in him could be saved from the just wrath of God against their sin. For those who place their hope, even this morning as you're sitting there, for anyone who places their hope in Jesus, God no longer sees your sin, but Christ's righteousness. Oh, praise the Lord. The qualifications for such a redeemer are pretty unique when you think about it. John Stott summarized it this way. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. 
If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them God's sons. So as wonderful as redemption is, the verse doesn't stop there. There's more. This is great. Verse 5 says, He redeems those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What an incredible expression of love. The word used for adoption literally means to receive the placement as sons. It's like a legal term. So in the Greco-Roman world, a childless, wealthy man could take one of his servants and actually adopt him. As soon as the adoption was final, he stopped being a slave and received all the financial and legal privileges of being a son and an heir. So though by birth he was a slave without a relationship with the father, he now receives all those benefits and the legal status of the son. So it's incredible to think about that in relation to divine adoption. So we we weren't just some nice servants obediently working in the house of a benefactor that needed an heir, right? We, We were active rebels in direct defiance against the God of the universe who does not need anything from us. If we would have been present at the crucifixion, our voices would have risen with the crowd that cried, crucify him. I just think about personally all the times I lived in secret. I told lies, cheated, or burst out in anger, or harbored jealousy, or lived self-righteously. And if you're anything like me, our, our sinful hearts would have been glad to see the hammer fall on Christ's outstretched hands. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son so that the hammer fall of slaves to sin might give way to another hammer fall. God, the righteous judge, wields a hammer in the form of a gavel. And for all the slaves to sin who place their hope in Christ, God looks down from the judgment seat and brings down that gavel with a single blow to make two declarations at the same time. Based on the work of Christ, I declare you innocent and I declare you my son. Then he places the gavel down and comes down from there and grabs you and adopts you and brings you home as his child. What? How, how could God be so kind to forgive us, let alone adopt us as his children? J.I. Packer said, To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved by God the Father is greater. Incredible. When, when confronted with this picture of God's generosity towards former slaves to sin, it's common for Christians, I know for me, to think of their salvation only in terms of being forgiven by God the judge, but not adopted by God the Father. But when we live like that, it's like we're only half saved. Right? We, we claim the pardon, but pretty soon after that, we start trying to gain and maintain his favor, don't we? Paul wants to show the Galatians and us that not only did the Son remove judgment that we deserved, 
but he also gives us the blessed status of sonship. We are both forgiven and adopted. Does that, does that make you uncomfortable a little bit? Do you feel like you need to do something to stay in God's favor? Do you feel like he'll kick you out if you mess up again? Underneath all of those questions is really one core question. Why does God love me? Pastor David Platt described a conversation he had with his own adopted son on that very question. He says this, The other day I was playing with my son, whom we adopted from Kazakhstan, and his favorite question now is, why? <laughs> Parents can relate. When I told him I loved him, he asked, why? I said, because you're my son. And of course he asked, why? How do you answer that? Out of all the children in all the world, why is he my son? I started to think about all the factors that had to come together from the timing to the qualifications to the ups and downs and the days my wife and I wondered if we could do this. And I felt the tears well up, though my son didn't even know what was going on. I looked at this precious little boy and I said, because we wanted you, buddy, and we came to get you. That's why you're my son. In a much greater way, you and I have a God who says, I love you. And when we ask, why God? He answers, because you're my son. But why? Because I wanted you, he says, and I came to get you. Where you look for the certainty of God's love for you makes all the difference. If you look within yourself, you will be crippled by striving and legalism. You will always be wondering, have I done enough? You will always be wondering. But if you look out to the cross, you will see that God's love for you is not based on what you do or don't do, but on what he has done for you in Christ. Romans 5.8, I'm so encouraged by this verse. It says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Through the Son, our adoption is secured. Now let's take a look at the second stage. Through the Spirit, our adoption is assured. Look down with me at verse 6. It says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God initiates the adoption by sending his son and then applies it to our lives by sending his spirit. So the work of the, the son brings us this an objective legal condition that's ours whether we feel it or not. So the, the gospel is not good vibes. It's good news of an objective historical reality that is accomplished for us by God through the son. But God doesn't leave it at that. This is an incredible part, more incredible if it can be that. The Spirit brings us a radically subjective experience as redemption is applied to our lives day to day. 
So how, how does the Spirit assure us of our adoption? Well, human adoptions are really special, but they don't change the child's nature. Right? The change is legal and it's relational, but when God adopts us into his family, he changes who we are from the inside out. The gospel transforms us from slaves to sin to sons of God. Verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son, where? To our hearts. It's the fulfillment of what Ezekiel looked for hundreds of years before God sent forth his son. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in Christ, we become new creatures, right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Oh, it's glorious. God changes our nature by sending the spirit of his son into our hearts. And he never departs. And he transforms us over time. Have you given thought to how he's changed you? If you're like me, maybe it's easy to dwell on all the rough edges and all the parts that are unchanged and focus on those things. But let me tell you, the condemnation has no place in the Christian life. The Spirit brings conviction that transforms you and brings life. Do, do you remember your, your thought patterns and your actions before you were a Christian? I want to invite you this afternoon, uh, maybe this will be a good lunchtime exercise, sit down with some people that know you and, and think about this wonderful renewal of your mind that the Spirit has brought over the course of your Christian life. Maybe, maybe this would be something fun to, to draw some people out. Celebrate the evidences of grace in your life. How has he changed you? What has he saved you from? What has he preserved you from? I trust that would be an encouraging thing this afternoon. Now, he gives us a new nature by his spirit, but what are we to make of this, like, Abba Father part? Abba, as many of you know, is this intimate word, kind of like daddy or, or papa or something. Kids used to use that in, the, in this time. And the first time that I read this, this verse, though, I'm just going to be honest with you. It didn't strike me as very helpful. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, this is typical dad mode, like, when did crying fix anything? You know, like, I'm telling my kids, hey, stop, stop crying, just get up, we're going to fix this. You can tell them. Yeah, so, <laughs> maybe I'm the only one, but I, I'm just focused on that. What, when did crying fix anything? Well, let me, let me show you what I found about the importance of this cry. So I was reading Russell Moore's book, Adopted for Life, and I came across this description of one of his many visits to a Russian orphanage to work through the logistics of adopting his two boys. Listen to this scenario. Of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all others in its horror. It was quiet. The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. If you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their beds. They didn't cry because no one responded to their cries. So they stopped. That's dehumanizing in its horror. 
The first moment I knew the boys received us in some strange and preliminary way was the moment we walked out of the room for the, first, for the last time on the first trip when little Maxim, now Benjamin, fell back in his crib and cried. The first time I ever heard him do it, it was because for whatever reason, he seemed to think he'd be heard. And for whatever reason, he no longer liked the prospect of being alone in the dark. Crying out is not meaningless emotionalism. Crying out is the expression of hope for the hopeless. Crying out is the vocal demonstration of dependence. What's more, crying out, Abba, Father, is an echo of Jesus praying in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. Mark 14.36, you remember this. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus cried, Abba, Father, as he depended on God to walk to the cross for sinners, so that we can cry, Abba, Father, as we depend on God to walk through this life as sons. Have you listened to yourself cry recently? What do you sound like when you're faced with difficulties, hardships, suffering, setbacks? Are you silent and hopeless? Or do you cry out? Maybe the question is, who do you cry out to? The ability to cry out to God is an invitation to see every day life through the lens of his fatherly love. We need to learn to ask moment by moment, am I acting like a slave who is afraid of God or like a child who is assured of my father's love for me? And one of the best ways, one of the many ways that we can be assured of our sonship is by how we respond to our suffering. The suffering God brings into our lives, whether it's large or small, it actually provides an occasion to confirm our adoption as sons. Hebrews 12, 6-7 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. So whether it's getting that unexpected phone call about an accident, in the middle of the night or struggling for patience with your small children. Our cry of dependence on God is a supernatural declaration of trust that can only be brought by the Spirit. Maybe at this moment, you're wishing that your default was to cry out to God at dependence, and it's not. (laughs) Maybe you find yourself hesitant to trust God And you tend to just lean on yourself instead. Let me just assure you, every one of us can grow in our trust of God. Children are constantly learning to depend on their parents. That's one of the take-homes of this text. It invites us to relate to God in this way. It invites us to cultivate a deeper trust in God's kindness towards his children. The work of the Son and the Spirit should never be divorced. The fullness of the Spirit is experienced as we meditate on the love of the Son. The gifts of the Son are enjoyed as we look to the Spirit to guide us. 
So I want to encourage you to give yourself to meditating on what God has done through the Son for you. Identify a few scriptures that make this clear. Uh, an example that has really served me, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's many verses you could use. We don't tend to think this way, though, do we? We focus on our failures. We assume God is constantly irritated with us. Or we just assume God, and then we navigate our whole day in self-sufficiency. So there is happy work for us to do here. Saturate your day with prompts about the love of God towards you in Christ. Write scriptures up on your mirror. Listen to verses on repeat while you commute. These things that have been helpful for me. Make a playlist of music that communicates these truths. We sang several of them this morning. It just bolsters your soul with truth. Ask the Spirit to help you grow, and you will increasingly cry out for the one you trust, for the one you know who loves you, for the one you know who can do something about your situation. God sent the Son to redeem us from slavery to sin by his death and made us sons of God. And then God sent his spirit to assure us of our adoption by changing our nature and giving us the cry of dependence. Because of Christ, we receive all of the benefits of being God's sons. And verse 7 sums it up this way. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Some of this inheritance is yet to come. There's a future hope for sons. At the return of Christ, we will be raised up from the dead to receive new bodies and new eyes to see God in the world without sin blurring the picture anymore. Isn't that an encouragement? We are sons and heirs right now, and the best part of our inheritance is yet to come. Russell Moore described the moment the adoption of their boys was final, and he walked out of the orphanage carrying his new son. This is such a vivid picture. And as they walked out of the building towards the taxi, Moore's new son begins reaching back for the orphanage. Tragically, it was the only life these boys had ever known up to that point. Little did they know that this reference point for their total life experience was no life at all. I, I just couldn't help but think of all that still had to happen on these little guys' journey. So much that they would not understand. They still had to cram into a taxi, which I'm sure they'd never been in, drive through the city, get into an airplane, and then fly through the night to the other side of the world. That process would be uncomfortable. Disorienting. But they were already loved as sons, and a forever home with their family was on the other side. We're not much different than these newly adopted boys, are we? So often, we reach back for that which does not satisfy. Like the Galatians, we turn to the very things that kept us in slavery. But we have been freed. 
we can turn our eyes from that and we can cling to our good Father who is with us and loves us. He sent his Son to redeem us while we were at our darkest. So we can trust him. If he loved us at that point, we can trust him for all the rest. In this world, we will have trouble, but he will not leave us as orphans. Through the Spirit, we can call to him now. And all the while, he will carry us, his beloved children, to the fullness of our inheritance, a home that is unobscured by sin, with a family in the presence of our Father forever. And that's good news. At Thanksgiving a couple years ago, I found myself sitting with my sister Judy, watching a documentary called The Dropbox. Never seen it, it's great. The film followed a Korean pastor who created a small portal on the external wall of, of the church building so that moms who would normally abandon their babies could drop them anonymously at the church through this portal. Most of the babies left in that box had extreme disabilities that would require constant and complete care. This pastor became the father to many such children. He and his wife and the few church members spent their days and nights feeding, bathing, loving these children. These children would never be able to be independent. They were going to go out and earn a bunch of money and make their parents real proud in that way. They were utterly dependent on this gracious pastor who had brought them in as his beloved children. As I watched that movie... I looked over at Judy, and I just marveled at the fact that this former orphan was sitting with her family at Thanksgiving. I looked back at that TV as the pastor was helping sponge bathe a helpless, deformed baby. And I, I just couldn't help but think about my own adoption. I was just like them all. God came for me not because of anything I could give, but simply because he loved me. I had nothing to give and everything to gain. It's been said that you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. What then should we think about the character of the God who turns slaves into sons through faith in Christ? I'll close with this, with Sinclair Ferguson. The knowledge that the Father has bestowed his love on us so that we are called children of God, and in fact are his children, will, over time, prove to be the solvent in which our fears, mistrust, and suspicion of God, as well as our sense of distance from him, will eventually dissolve. Let's pray. Oh, it's so good to be able to start our prayers with Father. Father, we come to you right now asking for help to believe what has just been proclaimed over us, the truths that are here, that you have secured our sonship through Christ. Regardless of how we feel day to day, that's happened. (laughs) We're so 
so grateful. And we are so grateful for the spirit that you assure us with day in and day out as we experience life and battles, fears and anxieties. And Lord, if we just ask that you help us to grow to trust you more. Our good Father, you are worthy of all things. We come to you right now clinging to you and expecting a great inheritance in the future and celebrating the inheritance we have now. In the name of Jesus, amen.